This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. So last week, when Ariane and I were planning out today's episode, we were going to do a dive into what the General Assembly managed to get done during their special session. And then the special session kept going. And going. And it's still going. We're currently in week six of the special session, which is actually the same length as some regular sessions. And it's still chugging along. With any luck, we'll have an episode for you in two weeks about that General Assembly special session. But, well, we also said that last time. Anyway, this week we turn to another key issue. Have you gotten your ballot yet to vote early in Virginia? It's not just a vote for president, senator, and House of Representatives this year. You may have also noticed a question about a proposed amendment to the Virginia State Constitution. And that proposed amendment is all about the problem of gerrymandering and how we draw our congressional district lines. All this year, the U.S. Census has been doing a rough count of every person in the country. Next year, in 2021, Virginia will be one of the first states in the nation to hold elections after the census. In between, the state needs to redraw its district lines to accurately reflect the population shifts that have happened over the last decade. Sounds like it should be straightforward. But what happens if somebody abuses that process for their own gain? Well, it's called gerrymandering. It's what happens when a political body uses its power to redraw the district lines for their own benefit. It injures the voters in the fair exercise of a constitutionally protected right to vote. In a representative democracy, voters ought to be able to choose the representatives they want. But with partisan gerrymandering, legislators choose the voters that they want. It, it undermines, to a certain extent, uh, the whole theory of, a, of democratic representation that we have. That's Brent Tarter. He's a retired research historian at the Library of Virginia and the author of Gerrymanders, How Redistricting Has Protected Slavery, White Supremacy, and Partisan Minorities in Virginia. We're going to hear more from him a bit later in the show. The proposed constitutional amendment on this year's ballot aims to create a nonpartisan commission to draw the new district lines in a fair way. Seems like a no-brainer, right? But as with so many things, the devil is in the details. And this proposed amendment might not be such a simple fix, after all. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. We kick off our discussion with some of the recent gerrymandering conversations in Virginia. The most recent problems with gerrymandering after the the, uh, census in 2010 were um, that a number of districts had to be redrawn, and it went to court, and it was a big mess. They did all kinds of things, such as uh, congressional districts, they would stack African-American voters into one district to to sort of dilute their influence in neighboring districts. And that happened with uh, the third district. And also it happened in the, you know, the General Assembly as well, where they had to redraw districts uh, because, you know, they they were favored. But just to be fair, you know, both sides do it. And that's why they gave rise to the idea of an independent commission, which is what the amendment's about on the election in November. How did Virginia come to have an amendment on the ballot uh, this year? Well, I think that activists got tired of the way the General Assembly was just sort of, you know, whoever's in charge at that moment, at that particular year, the first year after the census, first session gets to draw things. And it always ends up in court, and it's a big mess. You know, one of the activist groups was the uh, One Virginia 2021, um, which has done a lot to promote 
the idea of an independent commission, which is what appears to be might be happening. Eight members would be from the General Assembly. Eight would be independent citizens and um, supposedly independent. We're going to get to that in a minute. And they, they will come in and they will make the recommendations for um, you know drawing the districts. And this will get supposedly get more laymen and laywomen voices in, involved. So the idea for redistricting reform to try and end these gerrymandering practices is that there will be this independent commission. It's nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. It draws the lines based on fairness, based on, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. presumably appropriate community representation in uh, our legislative bodies. How is what's being proposed different from that? Okay. This is what people are complaining about. First off, the um, legislative, the eight members who are, they'll be like, four from the House of Delegates and four from the Senate, those people will actually be be picked by, you know, the General Assembly. So that's half the commission is already being controlled. And meanwhile, uh, the way I understand it um, is that the citizen uh, eight members will be picked by a group of five retired circuit judges. Well, who picks them but the General Assembly? So, you know, it goes back to the General Assembly. And another issue that um, one of my co-bloggers at Bacon's Rebellion, uh, Dick Hall Sizemore, has criticized, and I think rightly, is that if you look at the eight legislative members, um, for them, any proposal for a new plan would have to be approved by six of the eight legislative members, or it doesn't go anywhere. It ends up in the Supreme Court. And so that means that, you know, you still have plenty of room for partisanship there. All you have to do is get two partisan members of of the House group to get one of the other ones to oppose something, and that's it. So I don't know what the best thing to do is to whether vote down this amendment and hope for a better one, or, you know, maybe you should just grab the chance now. This is a dilemma that I'm having. I don't know how to vote on this, and I intend to vote this week. How did we end up with this proposal? I mean, there are other states that have commissions like this that are, you know, from what I understand, successful. You know, obviously the political climate has moved in favor of an independent commission. There's no question about that. But the powers in the General Assembly, in typical Virginia fashion, the Virginia way, have moved in to control that process as much as they possibly can. So, you know, you'll get a commission, but is it really independent? It's just, it's really kind of too bad because, um, you know, this existing system is really flawed. I mean, and it's been flawed for years. And you just shouldn't have to have the Democrats or the Republicans, depending on who's on top of that one, one particular year after a census, to you know call the shots for everything. Back back to the citizen advocate groups like One Virginia 2021. Um, right. Is the proposal on the ballot right now the one that they were advocating? What? I'm not sure, because I think there were two that were competing in the last General Assembly. And, you know, it's like, once again, it gets bogged down in, in the process. It sounds like, oh, we have an independent commission proposal. But then when you really look at how it's actually being presented and what's not being answered, it just raises questions. It's like uh, uh, the old cliche, it's the, the devil's in the details. Exactly. And that's what exactly happens all, all the time in the General Assembly. That's what they're really good at is, you know, either killing something in committee or engineering or something never really gets anywhere. And so there, there's just some really strong voices, uh, knowledgeable voices, really critiquing the, the amendment. And um, as I say, I'm afraid that if you don't vote for it, it might go away, you know. And so it's kind of a rock and a hard place. Well, Peter, what's our key takeaway? Key takeaway is um, 
read as much as you can before you vote, and hopefully you'll make the right decision. As I say, I mean, I'm befuddled by this. I mean, I was all for it. Oh, this is easy. I'll just write for the commission. But then when I started reading about it, and and the lack of clarity in the language on the amendment, it, it's just it's disturbing. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area and a regular here on Bold Dominion. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. In a moment, we're back with Brent Tarter. He's the author of Gerrymanders, How Redistricting Has Protected Slavery, White Supremacy, and Partisan Minorities in Virginia. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, including Ask a Wayfinder. Now that we're six months into the pandemic, I think honestly a lot of us have been hitting a wall. Ask a Wayfinder helps me out, and it's an audio advice column that combines wisdom with some mindfulness techniques. Ask a Wayfinder is available at virginiaaudio.org. Well, earlier this week, Bold Dominion producer Aryan Balu spoke with Brent Tarter. He's a retired research historian at the Library of Virginia and the man who literally wrote the book on gerrymandering in the Commonwealth. He and Aryan discussed the centuries-long history of gerrymandering in Virginia, the merits and failures of the proposed commission on your ballot this year, and the difficulty in passing a state constitutional amendment in the first place. The amendment process in Virginia is protracted. It requires a majority vote in both houses of the General Assembly before a general election, and then another majority vote after the general election on exactly the same provision, the same wording. In the 2020 General Assembly, they gave a second approval, which means then that that proposed constitutional amendment to create that bipartisan redistricting commission goes before the voters in November of 2020. This will be the voters' very first chance in the whole of Virginia's more than 400-year history to get rid of gerrymanders, or at least to reduce the likelihood of partisan gerrymanders. So specifically looking at the um, most recent amendment, could you go into more depth on the, the detail of what it does? The proposed amendment is complex. It creates a 16-member bipartisan redistricting commission for of those members are be from legislators of the House of Delegates and four members from the Senate. Two each in the House would be Democrats, two Republicans. Two each in the Senate would be Democrats, three Republicans. The other eight members of the commission would be named by uh, party leaders in the two houses of the General Assembly from a panel that retired state judges would choose. Uh, these would probably include uh, maybe some other state judges, maybe some experts on redistricting law, maybe some members of public interest groups. You know, perhaps there might be a representative chosen from the League of Women Voters, for instance. Uh, these people are supposed to be uh, independent of politics. The uh, proposed amendment then requires that that commission draw legislative and congressional district lines that meet the criteria in the state constitution and in the federal constitution and in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That requires um, 
reasonably compact district shapes. It requires that the territory within each district be contiguous. So you, for instance, you could not make a district that included Norfolk and Winchester and nothing in between. The most important part and where uh, we have the most restrictive rules of the Supreme Court of the United States is that the district must contain as nearly as practicable, that's the word, as nearly as practicable equal populations. Now, within those constraints, you can still do a lot of partisan gerrymandering. They've been doing it for decades in this state. During the latter part of the 20th century, Democratic legislators made it extremely difficult for Republican voters to elect Republican legislators. And during the first parts of the 21st century, Republican legislators made it extremely difficult for Democratic voters to elect Democratic legislators. That's partisan redistricting. If the districts could be drawn without reference to the place of residence of an incumbent, and if districts could be drawn without reference to the recent voting history of a district or any part of it, then it would be nonpartisan, or at least it would seriously reduce the amount of partisanship involved. With the politicians involved, you know that they're going to look out after their self-interests. That's, that's how gerrymandering arose, uh, first recorded episodes in uh, Massachusetts in 1812. So this, this uh, necessarily is a complicated process. Uh, it's a complicated commission. It works in a complicated way. It has to have a majority of legislators of both parties in favor of the final plan. And then the plan has to go to the General Assembly because this has to be enacted as a state law. The General Assembly can adopt it, pass it, or they can defeat it, but they cannot amend it. One very controversial provision indicates that if the commission cannot produce a districting plan that the General Assembly is willing to enact, then the state's Supreme Court would impose a redistricting scheme on both houses of the General Assembly and both houses of Congress. This has been very controversial. Uh, Democrats have, uh, have been very worried about this because the uh, fact of the matter is that over the years, the General Assembly has had the Republicans majorities in both houses, which means that the judges of the state Supreme Court were all selected by Republicans and are presumably Republicans. You know, if the shoe was on the other foot, uh, you would hear the objections probably from the other side, them's politics. Why, uh, why does this vote matter right now? Why is it important? One of the things that we don't appreciate is the importance of state government. Mm -hmm. uh, all of our focus most of the time is on the federal government because we know that's important. But state government affects us in just as many ways, maybe even more ways than the federal government does. I mean, it's the state government that states what our school system is going to be like, what our law enforcement system is going to be like, what our public health policies are like, what our taxes are. And in this instance, you know, who we get to vote for. Um, so state government, state courts are a lot more important than we give them credit for being. They deserve a lot more attention. They deserve a lot more scrutiny. There are some statements by, by activists. Uh, there's one from uh, Linda Periello, people who've, who've fought for redistricting reform who say this has not quite gone far enough. Um, she says that the, the fixes that didn't get into the amendment uh, would have provided guardrails for those who could or could not serve on the commission, um, explicitly prohibit gerrymandering and provide adequate guarantees for participation by persons of color. And sort of the statement there is that the, the people in power in Richmond have not 
the amendment that we're getting is not the one that a lot of activists want. Does what we have right now go far enough? And if it passes or, or fails, what is the likelihood of getting anything on redistricting reform in the future? This proposal is full of political compromises. Politicians wrote it. That's their responsibility. Our responsibility is to accept it or reject it. It's far from ideal, in my opinion. It still leaves entirely too much wiggle room and probably too much legislative influence. But without that, it wouldn't have passed the General Assembly and gone to the voters at all. Uh, I favor ratification. I'm going to vote for ratification of this amendment, imperfect though it is. What other legislation is perfect? We will try it out if it's ratified and see how it works next year. We have then almost a decade either to amend the amendment to try to improve any defects we find or ascertain whether by law we can require that commission to do something like, for instance, ignore the place of residence of incumbents or ignore the past voting district lines or, and you know, voters' behavior. You have to allow a certain amount of consideration of race in this. The Supreme Court says that. You cannot redistrict a state in such a way as to deprive minority voters of a chance to continue to elect African-Americans to the General Assembly. That's in the Voting Rights Act. That's not in the federal constitution, not in the state constitution. But the state constitution and laws has to conform to the federal constitution and federal laws. That, all that makes it just extraordinarily complicated. Um, I was surprised we got a proposed amendment at all. I was not surprised that some people find it unsatisfactory in one way or another, or in several. When would this amendment go, go into effect? Would it be, so is it going to be relevant for, for next year? It would go into effect in November of 2020. Because, ah. uh, you know, this Virginia Constitution requires that the legislative and congressional district be redrawn in the year 2021 and every 10 years thereafter, the year after the uh, uh, federal census. So it has to be done next year, it has to be completed next year in order that people will know where they live, in which district they live, and that, that people who want to run for office will know where to file their electoral papers and where to campaign. So if this minimum is ratified, this commission will be formed before the end of this year, and it will get it, begin its work, and it needs to complete its work while the General Assembly is in session, January and February of next year, so that the General Assembly can enact it as a law or reject it. Mm. So this, this is going to move fast if it's ratified. However uh, it works, we will see whether the objections and reservations that some of us entertain um, are serious or maybe not so serious as we feared. Your focus is, is really looking back at how we got here. I'd love to, to delve into that. Um, I, I mean, I can guess what makes Virginia sort of the, the home, the, the, the center of gerrymandering, which is, you know, it's the center of a lot of the uh, terrible power practices in American history. But what uh, what got us here? What are some of the, the interesting points in the journey to getting us to the point where we are? Well, I'm, I'm afraid that some other states are e even worse in their use of gerrymandering recently, but it's, it's very, very injurious uh, to those of us in Virginia. As I said earlier, we think about gerrymandering as a partisan exercise where Republican legislators try to reduce 
the number of Democratic legislators or vice versa. We think of it as a zero-sum game between the parties and the General Assembly. But in fact, the real victims of partisan gerrymander are not the other politicians, it's the voters, because it injures the voters in the fair exercise of a constitutionally protected right to vote. In a representative democracy, voters ought to be able to choose the representatives they want. But with partisan gerrymandering, legislators choose the voters that they want. It, it undermines to a certain extent. Uh, the whole theory of a, a, a democratic representation that we have. And it's not new. I mean, people have been doing this for, for decades and for centuries. In the, in the 20th century, when conservative Democrats were in control of the state, they made it extremely impossible for Republican voters to elect people they wanted, either to Congress or to the General Assembly. Um, early in the 20th century, when Republicans had majorities of the General Assembly, they made it equally difficult for Democratic voters to elect their first choices to the General Assembly. So it, it, it is injurious to the voters. They ought to be the most concerned. All voters, not just Democratic voters or Republican voters, but independent voters. Less of a, a partisan issue and more of those in power structuring things to maintain their power. Has it been a partisan issue in the past? What is sort of the history of how gerrymandering has been used in Virginia? Well, in the, the revolutionary, but before the revolutionary period, actually, during the colonial period and the revolution and thereafter, um, they didn't actually deliberately gerrymander the General Assembly, but they had a kind of gerrymander anyway. In the colonial period and up until 1830, every county got two members of the House of Delegates, regardless of its size, regardless of its population, regardless of its wealth. Um, and at that same time, the only people they allowed to vote were adult, white, property-owning men. So in effect, that was privileged the minority of Virginians who were adult, white, property-owning men. That's not exactly a gerrymander, but has the same kind of effect. Um, before the Civil War, they contrived legislative districts that enabled um, white adult property-owning men in the parts of the state where slavery was most important to elect more members of the legislature than everybody else. That was a deliberate scheme of representation to protect slavery. Uh, I call that a gerrymander. Um, during the uh, latter part of the 19th century, when there was a competitive politics in Virginia for a brief time between Republicans and Democrats, they didn't so much gerrymander as they rigged election laws to make it very difficult for Republicans and African Americans to register or to vote or to have their votes fairly counted. Virginia for much of the 20th century was a one-party state, rigid-run party state. They didn't use gerrymanders specifically, but they profited from schemes of representation that worked the same as a gerrymander, not just to keep Democrats in and Republicans out, but to keep Harry Byrd conservative Democrats in and other kinds of Democrats out. So this is this has worked all the way through the entire of Virginia's history in, in one variant or another. Once you have um, means of keeping the political power in one place, how do you then, uh, or how has Virginia then sort of moved out of that, that inertia and made a shift? Well, gerrymanders seriously affect the electoral process, but they're not the only thing. Uh, 
throughout the, uh, say, the second half of the 20th century with the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, the end of the poll tax, um, that broke down the part of the basis of the one-party Harry Bird Democratic Virginia. So that it allowed a lot of people to take part in politics who had been frozen out before. At the same time, there are many changes in Virginia politics that reflect changes in national politics. Uh, during the second half of the 20th century, Republicans gradually grew more conservative. Democrats became more uniformly liberal. That polarized politics in a slightly different way it wasn't so much Democrats and Republicans, it was liberals and conservatives. As the parties changed, voters' allegiances changed, and in spite of democratic gerrymandering that made it difficult for Republicans to win election late in the 19th century, eventually they were so numerous that they won anyway. And something similar has taken place uh, in the last decade or so. You know, uh, Virginians have won every gubernatorial election but one in this century. Uh, they've now carried the state for three presidential candidates in a row. No Democrat had won this state in a presidential race except Lyndon Johnson since 1948. I mean, that's a big change. That's a demographic change. You know, there's a lot of Virginians now who weren't born here, didn't grow up in the old atmosphere, didn't think the same as the people who thought in the olden days. Uh, they live in different places. They do different kinds of work. We have different communications media. We didn't have podcasts until just a short time ago. Um, all of these things conspire together to change the political climate. That has changed electoral behavior. It's demographic change and cultural change that in turn then begins to drive political change uh, in the state and has finally led us to the point now where we have an opportunity in November to uh, try to reduce the influence of partisanship and now we're redistricting. Why is this whole process so difficult and you know susceptible to political interference in the first place? One thing that it's tempting for any uh, lawyer or political scientist or historian to do is to get bogged down in the complexities of the law. Redistricting law, the court cases on it, are unbelievably complicated because you're dealing with a great many uh, extremely important issues of where people live, where they work, how they behave, what they believe, what they want. Um, and they work at cross purposes. Uh, it, it's, it's just really difficult. And uh, federal courts in particular have required uh, such an exact standard of equality for population districts that uh, you, know, you, you, you get some pretty funny looking lines that are drawn between electoral districts just because there are 12 people on this side of the street and six on the other side of the street. Even the line may have to cross the street. So the case law, the federal case law, that involving equality of districts and also uh, the even more complex case law involving uh, adherence to the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, means that you really do need a whole room full of skilled lawyers who know their stuff on that subject and then at the same time, in order to get the mathematics right on equality of population, you need another room full of people who are statisticians with a big graft of computers so that they can put all of this new data in. You know, we'll get new data from the Census Bureau early in 2021 if we're lucky, they do their job. And then they will have to contrive a whole scheme of legislative representation in very short order. 
that's a very difficult, technologically difficult process. I wouldn't even begin to understand how the mathematics works. I have some general understanding of the law, although I'm not a lawyer, and I wouldn't presume to call myself an expert on that. But uh, you've got many complicated factors here going on, plus then the um, political interests that we all feel in, in the outcome. The outcome is one thing, the process is another. We have to distinguish that between the two. I mean, representative democracy is the process. How it comes out is a different thing. And we tend to focus on the end result, which is the whole purpose. So it's easy to let too many things get in there. You've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen already. Um, too many ingredients makes it even harder. Brent Tarter is a retired research historian at the Library of Virginia, and he's the author of Gerrymanders, How Redistricting Has Protected Slavery, White Supremacy, and Partisan Minorities in Virginia. Thanks to him and also to journalist Peter Galaska for joining us on this week's episode. My name's Nathan Moore. I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Aryan Balu. Find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Keep social distancing, y'all, and I'll talk with you again in a couple weeks.